Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Barry Green. Barry is the CEO of Cambridge, Massachusetts-based Sage Therapeutics. Sage is developing a new medicine for the treatment of major depressive disorder and postpartum depression. Sage and its partner Biogen recently completed a new drug application to the FDA for permission to start marketing Zoranolone. This drug is a once-daily oral medication that's designed to be taken for two weeks. Depression affects tens of millions of people worldwide every year. It's been treated for decades with medicines that are given on a chronic basis. They help many people, but not everyone. Often, they take several weeks to start kicking in. That doesn't help people who need immediate relief in the midst of a crisis. The SAGE drug is worth talking about in some depth because it provides a different mechanism of action than the traditional SSRIs and SNRIs. As an allosteric modulator of the GABA-A receptor, it has been shown to work quickly, within three days. Patients don't need to take it on a chronic basis. Two weeks will often get them back to feeling like themselves again, or at least somewhat less depressed. If something flares up in their life and they need it again for another crisis, it's there if they need it. There has been some progress in recent years with different mechanisms for treating depression. Esketamine is one example, although there are a number of barriers to use that have kept that from having a big effect on how treatment is de- uh, of depression is done. Sage and Biogen will be doing a lot of work in the year ahead to prepare for the commercial rollout of this product. Much of this work will determine whether the product reaches a niche market or whether it can alter the landscape for how physicians and patients think about the treatment of depression at scale. The challenges ahead are huge, which we talk about here. Barry came to Sage as CEO two years ago when the company had struggled with its first marketed medicine and had to lay off half its staff. The good news is that it has a fighting chance to rebuild the company now around Zoranolone. It's given in a convenient oral pill rather than the more problematic IV form that is part of what tripped up the company's first product. Barry comes to this company after a successful career in operations and commercialization at Astra Merck, Millennium, and most notably, Alnylam Pharmaceuticals. Sage is at a point where it needs to become a successful commercial enterprise, and Barry is certainly someone who brings relevant skills and experience to this moment of opportunity. This is really a pertinent conversation for anyone who thinks about how medicines can ultimately reach large numbers of people in need, and for anyone personally interested in what's coming down the road for this all-too-human malady that strikes so many people. Now, if you like listening to The Long Run, you will love a subscription to Timmerman Report. This is where you can read my in-depth reports on the most interesting startups in biotech, my regular Friday Front Points column that concisely covers the issues of the week, plus insightful coverage of current topics in biotech from a rotating cast of contributing writers who I edit. Individual subscriptions are available on a monthly, quarterly, or annual basis. Group subscriptions provide a license to companies that have more than one reader. Group subscriptions are available at a discounted rate. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click on subscribe for more. 
and for sponsorship opportunities of the Long Run Podcast, or to inquire about bringing me to your company for a speaking engagement, see my business development representative, Stephanie Barnes. She's at stephanie at timmermanreport.com. That's Stephanie spelled with a P-H. Now, please join me and Barry Green on The Long Run. Barry Green, welcome to The Long Run. Thanks, Luke. Happy to be here. So... Uh, for listeners um, who have been on this show for a long, long time, you may recall that I had your predecessor, Jeff Jonas, on this podcast about three years ago, at that time talking about Brexanolone, which was marketed as Zolresso. And, you know, this was um, a first of its kind treatment for severe postpartum depression. Uh, I thought it was a pretty big story it, it, uh, in that it worked fast. It's the first new mechanism of action since the SSRIs from decades ago. Uh, for depression, uh, works with uh, the GABA receptor, uh, promising drug, didn't really work out commercially. But um, Sage has uh, a new uh, chance here with an oral drug that works on a similar mechanism uh, called Zoranolone. So um, I'm really excited to hear from you today, Barry, about this new medicine and and how it uh, really could potentially change it could achieve greater uh, adoption and uh, and potentially even change the way depression is treated absolutely look look we're really excited to bring zoranolone to market if it's approved because zoranolone represents a completely new way to treat depression for 50 years, we've treated depression about the same way. Obviously, the SSRIs and SNRIs came in about 30 years ago, really representing a more safe approach to treating depression, but not a fundamentally different way of treating still all monoamine. And we know that the depression is a significant issue in the landscape today. About six to seven million people per year are pursuing new uh, treatments for depression. So bringing a, a medicine like Zoranolone to the market uh, with over 3,500 patients worth of data across six positive, uh, well-controlled phase uh, two and three studies really represents a, a real advance. With Zoranolone, uh, we see a medicine that works as little as three days. So that's after either one or two evening doses. Uh, it's only taken for two weeks. So it represents a short course treatment with longstanding uh, efficacy and a safety pro profile that doesn't contain the kind of stigmatizing side effects often seen with today's antidepressants, things like weight gain, sexual dysfunction, a GI upset. So uh, we and our partners, Biogen, are really excited that we have filed the NDA. Uh, we anticipate hearing from the FDA early next year, whether we get a priority or standard review uh, and bringing Zoranolone to the market to really help the millions of people that are suffering desperately from depression. Okay, well, thanks, Barry. That's a nice high-level overview. Um, I think we'll we'll dive into some more of those uh, aspects of the product profile and, and how it uh, could change the paradigm uh, as we go on. Um, but I think you know, just as another piece of context, I think uh, I heard somewhere that the rate of depression has gone up either double or triple during the pandemic time. So, I mean, I think everybody knows somebody who's struggled at one point or another. So if there was any question about the need for new treatments and, and ways to help people get back on their feet, I, I think uh, 
we uh, we don't really need a whole lot more evidence on that point. Yeah, look, you're exactly right. The, the statistics are vary, but we have seen the rate of depression increase three to four fold uh, during this time of COVID. COVID has greatly exacerbated the rates of depression. And we, we were recently on a call with a major university who, who told us that they survey incoming freshmen pre-pandemic, one in 10 incoming freshmen res, uh, reported some kind of mental distress. That statistic is now over 50% of incoming freshmen. So just think about it. The rates of depression have skyrocketed uh, associated with anxiety, inability to sleep. And we, we, do, we just need new approaches. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So before we dive into you know, this product in, in a little more depth, um, Barry, can you just tell me a little bit about yourself and and uh, and your career arc, how you got here? So let's just start from the beginning. Where are you from originally? Well, look, the, I guess the, the best thing about me is uh, is my family. Uh, my, my wife, Natalie, and I have been uh, married for just over 35 years now. We've been together since 1981. Um, she's my rock and my foundation. We have two adult children. Uh, my son's actually on the West Coast. He's a scientist uh, in computational chemistry and synthetic biology. Uh, and my daughter, who uh, thought she was going into med school, discovered a passion during COVID. So one of the lemonades of COVID uh, for entertainment, uh, having written and directed and, and um, been in a, a show that she did about college life. She's now out in L.A. trying to break in entertainment. So uh, very close with my family, having Adult children that far away is tough. You know what it's like commuting between coasts, uh, but we are close. We get together for Thanksgiving and and my family all gets together over the holidays and brother's family, sister's family. So we got a tight-knit family. And, and to me, that's family's critically important and, and really a foundation. I'm also blessed to have uh, a tremendous network of friends from long time from uh, uh, college, my wife's law school, and obviously in the biotech community. And then, um, you know, kind of newfound friends during uh, during COVID started things like golf and pickleball, like millions of other people out there. So I uh, and then obviously the biotech community. So we're very well grounded in uh, with lots of support networks to really make sure that that um, the work we do focused on science, medicine and, and patient impact is is kind of front and center. Uh, in terms of uh, me, I uh, was born in Brooklyn, lived in the uh, kind of Philadelphia, outside of Philadelphia area, Allentown for, for high school, went out to Pitt for, for college, uh, and then really um, started my career with uh, with Anderson Consulting. It was actually Arthur Anderson well, Consulting. Wait a second, Barry. What what did um, your, your parents do for a living? What brought them to uh, Allentown? Uh, my father was a chemical engineer and uh, worked for Lindy Union Carbide uh, in the New York area, and then had an opportunity to uh, move to the business side after he got his MBA with Air Products, which is in the Lehigh Valley. So that's brought us to, uh, to Allentown. Uh-huh. Did you have siblings? I do. I've got a, a younger brother and a younger sister that uh, also grew up there. We're all still very close. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Now, what, what kind of student were you? Uh, bored. <laughs> bored I, in, in, uh, with, with what kind of subjects or just in general? No, I was... I was uh, I was a good student. I, I did very well in uh, I did very well in high school and um, very well in, at university. I was uh, I, I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed learning things. Things for me weren't all that exciting until we got into the depth of uh, some of the harder engineering classes. And I really had to dive in. Uh huh. Uh huh. Now, you went to 
Pitt for your undergraduate degree. Uh, what drew you there and what did you want to study? Uh, so my, uh, my, my parents did, did very well, but, but I went to school in the day where uh, you, you were on your own. So it represented sort of the best economic uh, formula. And, and I'm glad I went to Pitt because I met my wife before school started freshman year. Okay, so you were working your way to, uh, through to pay tuition and room and board, that kind of thing? Yeah, scholarships, jobs. Um, I, I was pretty fortunate. I, I was able to uh, play soccer. I was able to bartend uh, and then uh, got a great job with, uh, with PPG Industries as, a, as an intern for the last several years. So it was a really, really all-encompassing but wonderful experience. Now, I'm not hearing a lot about science or biology at this point. Uh, what were you thinking you were going to do with your life then? Oh, I was uh, I was a I was a pre-med and I was a pre-med engineer. So I, I focused on industrial and chemical engineering uh, with a lot of biology. Uh, and, and my thought was uh, was medicine. Um, my wife and I uh, were together. She was in law school at the time I was finishing. And uh, we both felt that uh, maybe starting with Anderson was a better approach to, to staying married. And it worked. <laughs> well, Anderson Consulting. So that's your first job out of school? The first job out of school was Anderson Consulting. We, I had the great fortune of uh, you know, being the engineer in the scientific background, uh, working in a practice group that we uh, called the food, drugs, and bugs practice. We were, uh, we were working across food industries, uh, chemical industries, as well as the pharmaceutical industries. And it really... Uh, solidified in 1992, where a group of us from Anderson uh, teamed with a group of people from Merck to spin out a, a company called Astromerc, which was set to launch Prilosec, the purple pill in 1992. That was a lot of fun. Okay. So you, uh, you got to learn a lot. I mean, this is part of what consulting does for a young person out of school. You get to learn a lot of, about different industries, all the different challenges they have. Um, uh, but it looks like you stayed there for about more than 10 years. Uh, were you thinking you might be a lifer as a consultant? Well, yeah, Luke, I really enjoyed the work we did at, at the nice thing about consulting is at a fairly young age, uh, you know, if you're, if you're good, you get to sit around the table with, with CEOs, heads of R and D, uh, heads of, of, of marketing, really thinking about strategic issues and helping solve those issues for your clients. I enjoyed it. I became a partner with Anderson and um, I really hadn't thought much about going into industry back then. What happened was, uh, you know, Astromark was widely successful. There was a CEO changeover, uh, Matt Emmons, uh, who was heading marketing and sales was, was a key client of mine and, and a good friend, became CEO and asked me to come on board and lead commercial. So I considered maybe in my late 40s, 50s going into industry, but not in my young 30s. Uh, it was, it, I'm glad I did it. It was a phenomenal, uh, a phenomenal experience, but that's, uh, that's how it happened. It was fairly short-lived a couple of years in, and, and we were able to uh, really help millions and millions of patients with, with Prilosec, and it became the largest selling drug in the United States under uh, my leadership in, in commercial. But uh, Merck and Astra had other ideas. Um, Merck, sold their 50% interest. Uh, we then merged with Astra USA, ended up leading that post-merge integration. And then six months later, I was asked to meet in London and I was congratulated on being the ninth employee of the world of AstraZeneca. 
uh, asked to uh, lead the AstraZeneca North American uh, post-merger integration, which which I did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what was your next move? Was that Millennium? Yeah, I, I was. So I was with AstraZeneca and I, I like to joke, Luke, that I'm just not mature enough for big pharma. Uh, it, you know, AZ was a great firm with phenomenal people, but it, it became uh, an area where where my focus on science, medicine, and patient impact really wasn't in the cards, given the level and, and what I was doing. So I really wanted to get kind of roll up my sleeves and get back into it. Uh, you know, at that time, there were a number of folks, uh, McKinsey included, who believed that Cambridge, Massachusetts, and this is, you know, this is uh, 1998, 1999, that Cambridge, Massachusetts was going to be the biotech hub of the world, given the the uh, kind of the the, the the system here with with VCs forming uh, at the time it was Millennium and Biogen and Genzyme were the big big companies, but really an ecosystem to create a biotech haven. And I was pretty focused on getting up to Cambridge, and I had an opportunity, uh, thanks to folks like Mark Levin, Kevin Starr, and, and John Mariganori, to uh, join Millennium to run the oncology. Uh, group, you know, Marsha Finucci was also a big help in uh, helping me say, helping me move up to the the biotech world from the kind of from the New Jersey Philadelphia corridor. So I joined end of two thousand, joined Millennium. So you saw something special in the place, the people, the networks. This was just where the action was. Almost like if you're an actor, you kind of got to be in Hollywood. Yeah, that's my daughter out in L.A. So yeah, you know. <laughs> I'd love to take credit that I was that smart loop, but it really was it really was the the white papers from from folks like McKinsey and and I guess at the time it was Accenture and others really highlighting that that Cambridge was set to blast off and and be a biotech hub. So I guess strategically wanted to get up here and the, the commitment I made uh, to my wife because we had two young children at the time and she was a, a corporate litigator, corporate attorney. Um, the commitment was there, there are so many biotech companies up here that if Millennium uh, doesn't work out, assuming I do, what, I do a good job, that that we won't have to be moving every couple, three years, that there'll be enough in, in this area to uh, to continue to focus on on biotech. And, you know, she knew my passion was science and medicine and uh, and and, you know, do, doing so to have big patient impact uh, rather than some of the bureaucracies that other kinds of roles can get into. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. But it, I, I mean, this is around the time I started reporting on the industry. And, and uh, I remember uh, as much as uh, the activity was evident at that time, it was nothing like it is now. I mean, large, empty lots in Cambridge for uh, the historians out there. It's just uh, the big pharma wasn't there. Um, it, it's just orders of magnitude bigger and more vibrant today. Oh, absolutely. The, the big the big companies at the time at end of 2000. Were Millennium, which Luke, as you remember and reported on, was the Darling Genomics Company until we pivoted. Uh, you know, Biogen was really the high science play. Uh, you know, Phil Sharp had founded Biogen and uh, and really steered that to become a commercial entity. And then Genzyme and and, and Henry really uh, really with more of a business model play in in uh, in rare diseases. Uh, so it, in liposomal storage disorder. So it really was. Kind of the big companies, and then obviously a lot of smaller companies were forming at the time. Um, venture was was much smaller than it was, but present. So it really, you know, those that called it called it well. It really was the very beginning of what's become a tremendously exciting ecosystem here in in Cambridge and Kendall Square. 
So you're there in the early 2000s, and this is the t- the time of the genomics uh, boom and bust, <laughs> really. Uh, I think Millennium had already acquired what became Velcade, um, and, and you were working on oncology commercialization. Is that right? Uh, all yeah, sort of. I was I was the general manager on college, so all of oncology, and and yes, uh, we we leveraged the balance sheet of Millennium, recognizing that the genomics pipeline would take some time to come to fruition. We leveraged the balance sheet to acquire what we believed were really important oncology assets. At the time, Millennium had a deal with a a, a big uh, a big pharma buyer, so. Many of the work we were doing actually went into that partnership. So to form a uh, an oncology group and, and potentially commercialize, we started acquiring. We acquired uh, Leukocyte for their for their antibody platform, and fortunately, they had acquired uh, Proscript. Um, so the you know, PS three forty one, which became Velcade, uh, really became a major focus. We were successful in uh, getting Campath over the finish line, uh, which was an antibody. Uh, which was which was partnered out, but really the the big millennium story was uh, bringing Velcade from preclinical into the clinic, uh, and then um, you know getting it approved in in three and a half years after first in man, and then an ex U.S. partnership with J and J that became the basis of of millennium that Takeda eventually acquired. So the Velcade story and arc was really exciting. So you were there as it was growing up and becoming. Um a commercial company with a product. <laughs> um, great, great experience. And of course you met some, uh, some dynamic people, one of them being John Mariganori, um, recruits you to come join El Nylum as uh, what were you something like first 10 employees? Yeah, I got, I was fortunate to get to El Nylum uh, pretty early, but it, the, the interesting story there is that uh, Phil Sharp, who was the scientific founder of El Nylum actually came to Millennium to present this breakthrough in biology called RNA interference. And, and uh, you know, John was there, I was there, many of us were in the room. And Phil is, he's one of those, uh, you know, he's a Nobel laureate and an institute professor at MIT. He's one of those professors that can take very, very complex concepts and ideas in biology and make them very simple, but, but simple in, in terms of being correct. And when he explained RNAi, it was just so wonderful and so elegant. Uh, it was really intriguing. Now, as we talked about, I was running oncology at the time and Phil rightly so highlighted that the key issue with RNA was delivery, <clears throat> getting the small interfering RNA into the cytoplasm of the cells where the, the, the RNAi action worked. And in oncology, that meant getting into kind of every cell, which I thought, I thought was exciting, but years away. And here we are, you know, whatever, 20, plus years later, oncology has been solved for a number of, of areas and, and people are just starting to get into oncology. So I didn't think oncology was a place to go. So, you know, John ended up leaving to become CEO of Al Nylum. And I was very busy getting Velcade approved and launched. But once that was done, John and I spoke, I guess, uh, the summer of 03, and he was looking to for you know another senior executive to come on and partner with him and kind of build a company, build a whole new class of, of medicine. So I, I uh, after successfully launching Velcade and getting the XUS partnership done with J and J, I left to join Al Nylon. So I um, 
we could have a whole podcast about El Nylum. I mean, it was quite a ride. You were there for, I think, 17 years uh, working there with John as chief operating officer and as president uh, up at the end. Ended up uh, I mean, a real success story. Built this fully integrated company with several products and international operations and partners. I mean, there there was uh, a lot there that um, that built off of the skills that you had accumulated at the previous stops. Um, so you by by think I think this was August of 2020. You you made the announcement you were going to step down from El Nylum and look at other opportunities. Uh, what were you? thinking you would do or what were you looking for around that time? Yeah, Luke, as, as you hired the Al Nylum experience was, was tremendous and it was, it was wonderful working with, with John and Akshay and Yvonne and a number of others, really you know, building a global company, uh, you know, launching a number of drugs, hiring thousands of people in, in over 20 countries. And, uh, you know, I think building what today still is one of the most exciting pipelines in, in the industry and the El Nylum story is, is still unfolding. It's a very important company in the landscape. The other wonderful thing about uh, the work we did was the, the, kind of the breakthroughs in, in delivery. We were the first to commercialize a liposomal nanoparticle uh, in Ampatra, which became the, 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 which became the backbone of what the mRNA companies used for the vaccine. So uh, while the vaccine work happened in record time, people forget about the 10 years and billion dollars we invested to solve delivery so that in a very short period of time, we could have vaccines to save the world. So all that is tremendous. Look, along the way of El Nylum, I was in conversation with John on the board about you know, eventually moving off to do something else. El Nylum was great. It was fun. Uh, it, but you know, it really was time after 17 plus years to do something else. Now, we had a collaboration with Regeneron, as, as you've reported on. And it was amazing to me how far understanding of the brain had come uh, since I paid attention to it 20 years, 20 years before. And as you highlighted at the beginning of the podcast, you know, brain health issues, starting with depression, are growing rapidly. Uh, brain health issues of depression or, or neurodegenerative disease like Alzheimer's are due to overwhelm the healthcare system and are the leading cause of disability in the world. And because I felt that the science now had come a long way where real, real new medicines could be invented, uh, it was a good place to go. It felt to me like oncology did, you know, kind of 25 years ago. There were, there were medicines, they were good, but there was so much we needed to learn about oncology biology that, that new, new approaches could be developed. And look what's happened the last 20 years. It's been remarkable, still an issue. But remarkable. I felt like brain health was at that point. And, uh, you know, interestingly enough, my, my wife and I, as we were commuting from our my office to our kitchen, which everyone was doing in the lockdown of, of 2020, she, she and I were talking about what was next. And I wanted to be an operator. I wanted to run a company. Uh, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of built that way. And actually mentioned Sage as a company. I'd known uh, the scientific founders of Sage and Kevin Starr, who was on our board at, at El Nylum, and I worked with at Millennium, and Jeff Jonas was a CEO who, who might have wanted to you know, partner with someone of my background. I wasn't sure exactly what role, but as it turns out, um, at, at my El Nylum press release went out at 7.30, and at 7.30, not 7.31, I got a text from Kevin Starr asking 
to call him to talk about Sage. And at 731, I got an email from Jeff saying, let's talk about Sage. And, and I, I did other diligence. I talked to a number of companies, but really felt that Sage was the best science pipeline uh, team and, and balance sheet after the, uh, the Biogen deal. So really was a good place to, to come. And if you like listening to The Long Run, you'll love a subscription to Timmerman Report. This is where you can read my in-depth reports on the most interesting startups in biotech, my regular Friday Front Points column that concisely covers the issues of the week, plus insightful coverage of current topics in biotech from a rotating cast of contributing writers. Individual subscriptions are available on a monthly, quarterly, or annual basis. Discounts are available for groups. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click on subscribe for more. Let's talk a little bit about what you saw when you sized up Sage as a company in that brain health general area that you were interested in. What did you see there? And how did this match up with uh, what you bring to the table or, or were bringing to the table with your experience in operations and commercialization? Yeah, so what I saw when I I uh, dove in deeper, and I I knew of Sage and had, had talked to uh, you know Jeff and Kevin along the way. There were a couple of times where I almost joined the Sage board, but other other priorities occurred. So I'd followed the Sage story very very well, and what I saw in Sage was a deep understanding of brain circuitry, uh, really focused on uh, you know NMDA, the excitatory pathway, and, and GABA, the inhibitory pathway. And a really novel way of targeting those pathway with neuroactive steroids, including oxysterile chemistries, allosterically. So not not the kind of the hammer approach, but a more delicate approach. You know, obviously they had been very successful in getting the first drug ever approved for a postpartum depression. And I really saw the opportunity of a emerging later stage pipeline to look at diseases differently and have a really different um better approach to treating those diseases and a real product engine. Now at Sage, it's not, you know, it's not RNA or antibodies, it is small molecules, but the Sage team understanding uh, really is a pipeline. There's a number of products where I think we have an opportunity to be a leader in brain health and a top tier biopharmaceutical company bringing new drugs and new indications to bear on a, on a regular basis. So it's, it's a multi-product, multi-indication, multi-year story. Mm-hmm. But also, uh, Zoreso, the, the first product had been approved, and it didn't work out commercially. Um, what did you see from that experience that you thought, um, hey, we can build off of this. We've, we can learn a few things, and, and I know what to do. Well, Sage, like many other companies, went through uh, some pretty rough times. There was the, you know, a failed launch, a, a failed phase three, and COVID hit requiring the company to restructure. So it was a really rough, you know, really rough time for Sage when I was talking to them. Uh, I was a consultant to Sage as we were negotiating the Biogen deal, which was a, was a pillar. But I really saw a, a team, a pipeline, a balance sheet that could create a top-tier biopharmaceutical company, starting with uh, Zoranolone, a completely new approach to treating depression. And the team had already designed a series of phase threes to to figure out whether Zoranolone worked effectively as monotherapy, <clears throat> as 
an add-on to a stable antidepressant where people still were depressed or uh, co-administered with an antidepressant. And, you know, we're sitting here today, Luke, with six successful late stage trials and an NDA filed. So the path is uh, partnering with Biden to successfully launch Zeranolone, uh, bring Sage 324 to market for things like essential tremor and potentially epilepsies. And then after that, we have a fully owned pipeline, starting with Sage 718, uh, focused on improvement in executive function, learning and memory, uh, with the indication potentially leading with Huntington's, followed by Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. And on the back of Sage 718, we can globalize Sage, starting with Huntington's. It's an orphan disease, and a more focused commercialization effort. So if I go back two years, and, and actually today is my two-year anniversary, uh, the, the the path of creating a global company that could be top tier and have really huge impact on brain health disorders was in front of us. And that's what we're executing on. We talked just a little bit about the difference between these two, uh, th- these two drugs uh, because Brixanolone um, was designed as allosteric modulator. As you point out, it sort of tickles uh, the receptor rather than completely inhibiting it or, or seeking to do that as, as, some other medicines do binds with uh, the GABA A receptor. I think that's right. Inter- interacting with neurotransmitting signals, and what that product demonstrated was that it could have an effect, a pretty significant effect, quickly within about three days f- against postpartum depression when given given intravenously. But that required a whole lot of. I mean, required the patient to be hospitalized. There's stigma issues around postpartum depression. I, I imagine there's a whole, a whole bunch of, there was price that some people objected to. There are a whole bunch of reasons why that program didn't work. Can you juxtapose that with Zoranolone and why that might have a, a different product profile that you think will, will catch on and succeed in the marketplace? Absolutely. So with, with, with Zilreso, we were able to demonstrate a very important scientific proof point that by allosterically modulating a GABA-A, we could have a fundamental impact quickly in, in depression, in this case, postpartum depression. And we are at the stage now, Luke, where we're helping hundreds of moms, not the thousands of moms we help, hope to help, but, but the hundreds, but hundreds of moms. So it's really gratifying. And in fact, shortly after I started in, in, a, in a, the right compliant fashion, I ended up talking to a a patient who was treated with Zelreso, and she told me her story, uh, and she told me really how how this how Zelreso, uh allowed her to return to her family and love her child again, which was not in the cards at the time, and begged us to make sure that we kept Zelreso on the market to help moms that were in desperate need. So, our team's done a phenomenal job uh, helping moms out there with with Zoreso. Zoranolone represents a completely new approach. To, uh, to treating uh, PPD and MDD. It's, it's an oral pill that, that those suffering would take at night with a meal. Uh, it's, it's 14 days worth of treatment. At the beginning of the podcast, I articulated the profile, which is it works in every trial. It works fast. Uh, people start feeling better in two to three days. Uh, and, and they feel uh, well, at the majority of people feel well at the end of two weeks. Uh, and let me put a fine point, both for PPD and MDD. With the current antidepressants, what we often hear from patients that 
they feel less depressed, but we don't often hear that they hear that they feel well or vibrant or like themselves again. And one very important difference that we're seeing with zoranolone, supported by the clinical trials to date and patient-reported outcomes, including the SF36 outcomes, is patients are telling us they feel well, they're back to themselves, uh, they're they're, a bit, they're able to thrive, and that's a fundamental difference. So as we highlighted, you know, there, there's a growing need for a different approach to treating depression. On PPD, there's about a half a million women a year who suffer from PPD. And unfortunately, very few of them uh, get treated because there aren't, other than Zoreso, drugs specifically approved for PPD. And, you know, giving someone a current antidepressant, SSRI and SNRI, that takes four to six weeks to work, if ever, and comes with the kind of stigmatizing side effects like sexual dysfunction and weight gain are really tough. A mom uh, not bonding with her child for, for four to eight weeks is devastating for that mom and child, but that has generational impact. So we have an opportunity to really change the paradigm there and uh, you know, make sure that we can help moms quickly and others living with MDD. So with a once daily oral form that's taken for 14 days, this is just a more practical profile that really meets more of the patients where they are. Um, they're they're going to be able to uh, get this prescribed by a physician and take it at home. Uh, and they're going to, and this, this works fast profile is uh, it, it's meaningful given that uh, ep- tr- depression is episodic. I mean, it doesn't, it, it sort of waxes and wanes for people. I think most people get this. It's not necessarily a um, a chronic low, even though that's the way it's been treated traditionally with SSRIs and SNRIs. Well, Luke, you've got it exactly right. The, the fact that depression is treated chronically is really a manifestation of the medicines that we've had to date to treat depression, uh, which only work when you're taking them every day or twice a day or three times a day. So uh, if we can demonstrate that a two-week course of treatment restores the neural networks back to a normative state and that patient who was had a dark mood, high anxiety, couldn't sleep, uh, is vibrant and back to the, themselves, which we've done in clinical trials, that's co- a completely different approach and, and something that is desperately needed on the landscape of depression today. This fundamentally changes the bargain, essentially, that the psychiatrist, or in your case, the, the pharmaceutical company, has with the patient. So traditionally with depression, it's been uh, take this, this SSRI, um, you know, maybe it'll work uh, in four to six weeks, and then you'll stay on it pretty much forever. You're offering something totally different, which is here's a pill that might help you within a few days. You'll take it for two weeks, and then you don't you can go off it. You don't need to keep taking this forever, but if you have uh, another bad episode, like something bad happens in your life, you lose a job or a house or whatever, you can call your doctor and it's there on the shelf and you can get it again for another course. Is that how you envision this being used? Luke, I think you've got it exactly right. If if a patient today shows up and, and they're fortunate enough to be diagnosed with depression because they have it. I'm fortunate because they get to a care provider who can diagnose them. They're given a standard antidepressant, SSRI and SNRI. And the instructions of the patient are, 
I'm going to give you this medicine. Uh, hang in there. Uh, it, it, it can work quickly for some people, but often takes four to six to eight weeks to work. Uh, if you have issues, side effect issues, call me because I can help you. And if they call with weight gain, I can prescribe metformin. If, if it makes you more anxious, I can give you another medicine. If it creates sexual dysfunction, I can give you another medicine. And particularly in the more complicated patients, it becomes a polypharmacy approach where a patient interfaces with a healthcare provider in their office very, very frequently, often dealing with the side effects of the drug before the, any efficacy kicks in, if ever. What we're doing here is we're, we're not changing the practice of medicine. We're enhancing the practice of medicine by giving a healthcare provider a tool where they can tell the patient, I'm going to give you this medicine, take it at night with your dinner. Uh, it'll make you a little sleepy the first couple of nights. Have a good night's sleep. You need it. And you should feel better quickly. And, and think about it. Rather than the mystery of wondering what's going on with my patient, are they still on the drug? Are they off the drug? What side effects are they suffering? Uh, I wonder if they're better at four, six, or eight weeks. We know in three days if the drug works. And, and the data to support what I'm saying, Luke, is really evidenced in the Shoreline study. The Shoreline study is the largest naturalistic study run in depression that we know about. Uh, it, it, patients are given an initial two-week dose. Uh, we saw about an 80% response rate. And remarkably, the majority of patients did not need another dose after that initial two-week dose. And then about 80% uh, only required that initial dose or one other two-week dose. So just think about it. As a, as a healthcare provider, I can give a patient a, a medicine. <clears throat> They're feeling better in two or three days. And at the end of two weeks, they're well, and they might not need that medicine for the rest of the year, if ever, because of the episodic nature of depression. And as you highlighted, if they have the loss of a loved one, a, a job change, and they, they feel themselves with their mood darkening, their anxiety increasing, their inability to sleep, I can call my healthcare provider and, and take another dose of, uh, of Zoranil. And the shoreline data support the fact that it, it, it works for that patient again. What was the uh, underlying rationale for uh, changing this uh, dosing regimen to just being for two weeks and then redosing if needed? Because I, I would imagine, I mean, you probably people probably thought, well, give this thing chronically because that's the way depression medicines have always been given. Um, um, but in this case, it sounds like maybe you learned something along the way that said, more isn't necessarily better or chronic administration of our drug isn't actually going to provide a marginal benefit to the patient. What Sage learned by working with uh, the GABA pathway and brexanolone is that a short course treatment uh, can, and this is the mechanism of action, we believe, reset the neural networks back to a normative state from a dysfunctional state. And why would I give someone who's thriving and well medicine that they don't need. So the idea of a short course treatment is what the science is telling us works. And if Luke, you, you mentioned this at the beginning, if you call a hundred of your friends, you'll, you'll find out a lot of them are on a uh, medicine, but there's a lot, there's, there's many groups out there that don't want to be on a chronic medicine. They don't want to wake up every day or try to go to sleep every night being re reminded by their depression. We're offering people an opportunity after 14 days to not, take any medicine and not be reminded every day that they were once depressed. Big, big, big leap forward. 
Yeah, it's there if you need it. Like, just like you and I both know, antibiotics are there if we need it. <laughs> uh, you get into a car accident, uh, painkillers, powerful painkillers are there on the shelf. They're in the medicines toolkit. They're there if we need it. Uh, but I don't want to take them every day <laughs> for the rest of my life. Well, that's exactly right. Having having Zoranolin there when you need it for your depression is is key. And you mentioned it. I wouldn't, uh, if I've got a lower respiratory tract infection, which many of us have suffered from over the last couple of years, and I take my Z, Z pack and I'm better at the end of that, I'm not going to keep taking an antibiotic. Or as you mentioned, and, and pain is a great model. Uh, we, you really don't want to be on chronic pain medicine if you can avoid it. If you're better and through that acute course of pain, and you're off your medicine, post-surgery, for example. If I can take an opioid for two or three days, get through the hard part, and now I'm back to not being on medicine, that's what most people want. They don't want to have to take medicine every day, and particularly medicine you don't need. So you're going to have some education cut out for you when this hits the market, because this is just a different way of thinking about treatment of depression than physicians or patients are used to. Um, uh, you're going to have to talk about the data. I know that you mentioned you've had six positive phase threes. A couple of them look to provide some kind of marginal benefit, I'd say, over the existing generics, the SSRIs. So how are you going to position this uh, product against uh, payer, against you know all the inertia of all these decades of treatment? And the payers who say, well, you know what, why don't we just try out uh, people on this drug that's going to be a fraction of the cost first? Yeah, Luke, great. And a number, number, of, uh, number of questions there. So let me start with this. So for years at, at Neuro Congresses and Psych Congresses, for years, the podium speakers have said, we need medicines that work fast. We meet, need, we need approaches that aren't chronic. The good news is that there is a wave now a belief that we can treat depression that way. Things like ketamine, esketamine, uh, newly approved drugs that are claiming to work faster. Uh, so there's a belief set that if we can get patients well fast with short course treatments, then we're going to help society uh, have less, uh, you know, much less depression, cost the healthcare system much less. Have, have much less absenteeism or presenteeism, which is critical from an employee uh, perspective. So that wave of rapidly acting short course therapies is on the horizon. And I believe Zoranolone uh, being a 14 day oral treatment taken every night is kind of the, the best approach in that, in that way. So mm. when you think about that and the totality of data, the lift that you described has gotten a lot lighter. The lift two years ago, I might've described as heavy. I think that lift has gotten a lot lighter because we're, we're falling into a profile, we're forming a profile that if you ask most people out there, um, that's what they want. If, if, if your adult child is depressed her freshman year of college, do you want her losing her semester because it took six weeks for an antidepressant to work? Or do you want her back in class in two or three days with a new approach to treating depression? I know which one I'd, I'd pick and I guarantee you every parent out there would pick the same. So we're riding that wave, which is very, very helpful. Now on okay, the so go ahead. No, I was gonna say on the payer front, we are deeply engaged in payer discussions. And as you may have read, Luke, we are leaning in with proactive value-based agreements 
with an attempt to partner with payers. And when we meet with payers, they'll say, well, our uh, line items for depression drugs in the pharmacy is not big because it's largely genericized, not expensive. Depression is actually costing us a lot of money because undertreated depression leads to other downstream comorbidities like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, even higher rates of infectious diseases, including and, and cancer. So they recognize that a, a depressed person on their plan ends up costing them a lot of money when they're not well. And, and they appreciate that. They also appreciate that, that we and at Sage and Biogen want to partner with them. We want to make sure that they have some budget assurances and there's things we can do in the context of a, a value-based agreement so that they can plan for a, a new brand to come to the market that can help their patients. So we're seeing tremendous uptake with, with payers and the, the, the desire to partner, as well as obviously uh, patient advocates and healthcare providers. You asked about positioning. I think at launch, given the dynamic of the market, we're going to uh, positions or analone for most patients as the, the next drug to use if your current antidepressant isn't doing well enough. About a third of our patients in our clinical trials, Luke, were the patients that were on antidepressant, but still majorly depressed. They weren't suffering the side effects per se because they were stable, but they weren't well. So that kind of low-hanging fruit of Six to seven million people are looking for something better annually is the, is the place to start. Okay. So it's not going to be the first option for people in, in, all, in most cases, but um, that second option or third, after people have kind of gone through the ringer with different medicines, uh, that's still a large group of people. Um, six, seven million, as you say. Um, okay. What kind of price range are you looking at? Well, let, let me just, before going there, let me just jump in with, with a couple notable exceptions. And, and this is something that we've got to help the market understand. Uh, I'd argue that the, you know, that young adult in his or her uh, university experience or first job experience, if suffering depression, shouldn't lose their college career or their, or their work career by waiting weeks and weeks and cycling through drugs until something works. They, you, want that, you want that group to get well better. Uh, the elderly who may have many, many other medicines they're on, and you don't want to add another chronic medicine. So there are uh, patient profiles, Luke, where uh, I believe that earlier, maybe even frontline is better than, of course, PPD. Uh, we do believe that xeranolone should be standard of care for PPD. And any mom that's suffering from depression after birth or at risk of depression should probably have access to xeranolone so that she's back in a loving mood with her baby and not, not causing that generational impact that depression uh, can cause. So there are places where I do believe that uh, it's justifiable for Zoranolone to be the first choice. Okay. Let me come back to this question about price in a minute, but before we get there, who do you see as the primary prescribers of this medicine? Now with postpartum depression, I, I could imagine OBGYNs might, um, but what about major depression? So on, on postpartum depression, you know, many women use their OBGYNs as, as their primary care. So absolutely. And the nice thing about the profile of Zoranolone is it actually works in the time frame that an OBGYN is, is dealing with that mom and the baby uh, post-birth. They're not needing to come back in six months to assess whether you're well or not. You'll know in a couple of days whether Zoranolone's helped you uh, get to the other side of your postpartum depression. On MDD, uh, it, it will be uh, psychiatry at, at launch and, and larger 
primary care practices that are comfortable seating, uh, treating psychiatry. Many of those practices have uh, PAs and nurse practitioners that can prescribe that often deal directly with patients suffering from depression. You know, over time, uh, you know, six months, a year, a couple years after launch, primary care will probably be the largest writers of Zoranil as they are with, uh, with antidepressants today. Okay, so this is a pretty large potential group of prescribers, probably why you have help from a partner like Biogen. How do you see divvying up the, the sales and marketing work between the two companies? Well, we, we, um, we're working through the go-to-market strategy. In fact, uh, we did a commercial spotlight that uh, Chris Benecki and Alicia Alimo and others participated in, as, as well as uh, Dr. Greg Mattingly giving a physician perspective, having used Zaround. So I'd encourage Chris is your chief business officer, kind of in charge of the commercialization. He is. And Alicia Limo is the president of Biogen's US group. Uh, Dr. Mattingly is a uh, physician scientist in the St. Louis area and has been involved in depression treatment and research for over 20 years. And I encourage your listeners to uh, tune into that commercial spotlight because there's a lot there. And mm -hmm. it you know, went on for, for quite a while. But to help you understand it, we are we're approaching the market with an omni-channel approach using virtual, digital, as well as personal promotion. The initial target will be the psychiatrists that are comfortable with, with new branded entrants and have a significant patient flow, as well as those larger offices that are comfortable handling, uh, handling depression. And we and Biogen are working on the best go-to-market approach, best medical affairs and Salesforce approach uh, to that. So more to come on that in the future, but please tune into the commercial spotlight. Okay. Pricing is obviously one of the key components. You've got some time to figure this out uh, in the, uh, whatever, six or nine months, maybe, <laughs> that you'll be under review at FDA. Um, can you give us a sense for what you're thinking about in terms of the parameters, the range for pricing? Yeah, Luke, you're right. The, the, way, the way we approach the market is very important and price is an important component of how we approach the market, you know, obviously until we're through the FDA review, we understand the label. Uh, in fact, we get through the DEA review. It's too early to talk about specifics of price, but let me give you some broad, uh, broad parameters. First, as I mentioned earlier, we're, we're looking to partner with payers or collaborate with payers in the context of proactive value-based agreements. What we hear from payers, as I mentioned, is that depression is a big issue and a growing issue. It's not well served with, with the, the generic drugs. It helps some people as you and I talked about, certainly not all the people, and there's six to seven million people a year looking for improvement in their treatment uh, parameters. So payers understand it. it. When we share the shoreline data, which demonstrates that a majority of those that responded required only the initial two-week course, and another 20-some percent required a second uh, course, of course, some required third and fourth, uh, but with, with decreasing numbers, there were very gratified by that, but they want certain protections. They want to understand that if their patient population requires six weeks or eight weeks of therapy, that we're not double tripling their budget forecast based upon the patients they think get treat depression. So in the context of a proactive value-based agreement, we can give some, some assurances uh, on that. The other thing that we hear from them, which is good, is that they're thinking about their per patient per year cost, not their per pill or per course of treatment costs. So we can work with them to make sure that on a per patient per year, we stay under that specialty tier of costs, which 
prompts automatic adjudication and could delay a getting drug. And that's around $10,000 per patient per year. So if the per patient per year cost is under that, they're happy working with us and limiting prior us and, and, and step edits, which is the right thing to do from a patient perspective. So those are, those are the kind of parameters and discussions we're in the midst of today. What I think I'm hearing is this is going to be expensive for a couple weeks, <laughs> uh, but you can't really determine how valuable it is until some more of those uh, that follow-up is done. And our, and our goal is, I mean, because you, you do need to be rewarded for what you've done, for what you've delivered for the patient, but you're not going to be prescribing this for a long term, you're not going to get the chronic recurring revenue that the older generation drugs did. So you're going to have to capture some of that right away up front and then prove to the payers that even though they paid a higher price up front, it was worth their while. Let me look at it another way, uh, Luke. Giving someone a, a generic uh, that is quote unquote not expensive still requires that patient to pay out of pocket. They might have to pay out of pocket every month. They go pick that generic up. Uh, the data suggests that the median time uh, the patient is on that standard antidepressant is seven weeks, and they cycle through two or more drugs in the course of the year. They require multiple visits and multiple calls to manage the side effects we mentioned, added anxiety, inability to sleep, uh, weight gain, GI dysfunction, causing polypharmacy, so more and more drugs. So when you think about an undertreated uh, or uh, untreated patient, it actually costs the healthcare system a whole lot more than the kind, than the kind of pricing we might have for Zoranon. So Okay, so that's I, like the saying that the existing paradigm is penny wise and pound foolish. For, for, for many patients. For some patients, it's fine. But for many, many patients, we talked about the numbers, it just doesn't work. And, and let, let's just put a humanistic spin on this. If it's you or any of your loved one, uh, do you, don't you want them better in two or three days? Yeah. And I don't want to be taking that medicine for the rest of my life and thinking of myself as a depressed patient. Uh, I, exactly. I, think there's val I think there's a lot of value in that, just getting people back on their feet and going about their ordinary lives. Uh, I think I think people will respond positively to that. Um, so what else do you think you're uh, up against? I mean, there's so much here with mental health. I mean, <laughs> the cultural stigma, the reluctance to seek treatment. There's, you know, the whole bias in our system where we don't really just treat mental health as seriously as physical ailments. Um, lack of reimbursement, telemedicine kind of, you know, becoming a diff, you know, good for a while and maybe now not, not as much as it could be. I mean, I, mean, I guess I could go on. Um, what, uh, how do you think about that system that you're entering and maybe, um, uh, you know, it, it, taking down one or two of those barriers? My experience, Luke, over the last kind of 35 years is when a, a, a new medicine enters the healthcare system for diseases that might've been thought about one way, but as a differently new approach to treating it, it, it changes the system and changes the disease state. Go back to, uh, you know, when we were thinking about Velcade for multiple myeloma, and that's when you started reporting, people were telling us, well, there's only 20,000 patients that have multiple myeloma. And we said, well, because they all die, frankly. And if you can keep 
people alive longer, uh, then you'll have a business there besides the humanistic view of helping patients. So think about where multiple myeloma is today, 20 plus years later. There's a lot of drugs and people are alive today that were treated in 2001, 2002 that might not have been. Uh, think about the rare diseases that either Genzyme or L myeloma's done. So we have, a, we have an opportunity here of bringing in a rapidly acting, short course oral treatment that has long lasting effects that helps tackle the barriers. It's, it's certainly less stig stigmatizing if I could take something quickly and I'm done with it. Uh, it. It helps the healthcare system if I can see a nurse, nurse practitioner and get a medicine while I might be waiting for my psych consult because I do want to talk to a therapist. It changes the system when you partner with payers and they don't institute uh, bad prior offs or multiple steps. It changes the system when you can talk to people on the Hill about the importance of telehealth and telemedicine uh, because of the people that can't work, uh, can't pay taxes because they can't work or on Medicaid that might get better and back to work. And I can go on and on. So a new medicine, a new medical entrant that, that changes the way depression is thought about and treated will help improve the system overall. You know what I think is really interesting about what you're saying here, Barry, is that, you know, I think there are a lot of people in the industry who, um, who, who lean on what you could call pharmacologic solutionism, that, you know, all we need is the pill. If we get that pill and it's fantastic, you know, everything else will work out. But, you know, uh, often what it really leads to in the real world is uh, a whole lot of prescribing of that new medicine and that boosts the prescribing volume and it maybe alleviates symptoms to some degree, but doesn't really solve the patient's problem. I think if what, you, if what you're able to do here <laughs> is solve the patient's problem, and maybe that has to come in partnership with uh, some of these other entities you mentioned and patient advocacy groups and community support groups where, you know, people are just not feeling depressed anymore. They're feeling well and they don't need to take that medicine for the rest of their life. I think now you're, you're getting closer to beyond pharmacologic solutionism. You're, you're actually solving the patient's problem. <laughs> uh, is, that, is that how you're thinking about things? Luke, I believe that people don't want to be less depressed. They don't want to uh, lose their memory slower. They want to feel well. They want to feel fit. They want to keep their independence. And that's what we're working on with Zoranolone and, and other products in our pipeline. And we are approaching the ecosystem in a, in a collaborative partnering approach. It's payers, it's healthcare providers, it's patient, patient advocacy, it's people on the Hill. And, and you've got it absolutely right. We have to bring a pill with education, solutions, and other information wrapped around that pill. So we're dealing with the whole of, of the patient and their family, and not just saying swallow this and all will be better. We need to bring total solutions to bear here. And that's what we're doing. Last thing I want to ask you, Barry, what's um, one big learning that you've uh, absorbed in your two years at SAGE being deep here in, uh, in mental health uh, treatment? Uh, maybe something that might surprise people. Well, I don't know that it's just a learning at, at, at Sage, Luke. It's really kind of learning throughout my professional career is that while any company can have a great science and great products, it's culture and people that really matter. And what's been amazing at Sage is the culture we're building, the team we've built, 
the people we're partnering with on the healthcare provider side, the patient side, and the payer side that have really been very, very rewarding. So what I, what I tell everybody is please take care of yourself so that you can do what's right for patients and what's right for our customers. Yeah. Well, they've got a, you've got a pretty big opportunity and, uh, and responsibility in front of you um, and a big year ahead to figure out some of these thorny issues we talked about. Yeah, 2023 and years beyond will be very exciting, Luke. And I think as we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, we at Sage have an opportunity to really lead a, a new way of approaching brain health and build a, a very important top tier global biopharmaceutical company in the years to come. And I'm revved up and excited to do it. All right. Well, I'll watch closely and, uh, and wish you well. Thanks a lot, Barry. Thanks, Luke. Appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.